being able to sit down with an absolute icon, Dr. Temple Brandon, who is world renowned for her impact on animal husbandry, animal science, the production aspects, and autism. The author of many books and the uh, focal point of a movie. So love to share her insights, her wisdom with you. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a Blue Zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. I just uh, am tickled to be doing uh, this little sit down with Dr. Temple Grandin. Uh, you are an absolute icon in the world that I come from with this regenerative agriculture and uh, building communities. You were recently in Will Harris's book as given a plug for designing his processing facility. So if, uh, if you don't care, will you just give a brief little introduction to what you do and okay. uh, we'll, we'll try to figure out some solutions. Well, I am a professor of animal science at Colorado State University, work on animal behavior, animal welfare. I've been there for 33 years. And my specialty is I want to find practical solutions, whether it's designing a meat plant or promoting regenerative agriculture. Also, a lot of great change happens more bottom up, one ranch at a time, and then you write about it. This is what I did with cattle handling uh, 45 years ago when I first started uh, was to I learned some things about the flight zone and point of balance and I wrote about it, you know, writing about how to do things. And just today I was reading my MIT technology review and they were talking about implementing policy. Okay, so let's say a big policy was uh, made about uh, people having health care. Well, especially us seniors, we couldn't figure out how to fill out the forms. And so what was done was some local people got together to help seniors in libraries to fill out the forms. You see, that's an example of something specific, rather low tech and specific, to implement the policy that was done at a local level to help seniors get health care. You see, that's a much more bottom-up approach. They can come into the library the, the and somebody's going to be there and just walk them through the forms. I love the the bottom up approach because one thing that uh, has kind of stood out is that it almost seems like we are up against like this Goliath uh, with how things are, and to get change, it takes this small little thing here, small little thing. So you right. you said from an individual I, I, farmer, an individual a person, better ways to educate people who think differently, and um, I say it's one school at a time, one school at one, a time, uh, and then write about how you did it. You see, one of the things I did with my cattle handling stuff years and years ago is I wrote lots and lots of just how-to articles, how to handle cattle, how to design corrals, just practical how-to things. I didn't hold on to my intellectual property. I let it go. And and I, I regenerative agriculture, I get the grassland stock farmer. And I, there's good articles in there on this farm. How did they do it? 
But one of the problems with the with the Stockman grass farmer, it's almost impossible to access online. Those good articles need to be put up online. Now, of course, they're worried about their print subscriptions. Well, let them get even a year old or six months old and then put them up online. But there's great stuff in that thing. I can't even get the title and hit the paywall online. Really? You see, that's not well, doing a very good thing of getting it out there. I mean, I have a website um, basically on livestock handling and welfare. I just give the stuff away. I've seen some of it incorporated into European legislation. And I go, oh, looks like Brandon.com <laughs> wrote that. So something really good that we're doing with grazing, write about it. The one thing I tell people is what works in one locale may not work in another. It's a very local specific, but it's one place at a time writing about it. Another thing is little people innovate. Same thing with ChatGPT. That was a little tiny company. Little people innovate. Every field, I don't care what it is. Well, then the big boys will buy them out, but little people in <laughs> yeah that consolidation for sure of buy now what you were on uh, the jordan peterson podcast and one thing that i took away that i thought was absolutely fascinating was how you you described like this too broad of approach of fixing a problem and not being targeted enough yes do i would you yeah, have do you have something you believe in the targeting of this regenerative agriculture movement on the smaller side? I, because, Dr. Grennan, I believe that this localization is key to getting the regenerative movement to the next step, yes, to building these sustainable, resilient communities. So do you have anything that stands out from a targeted approach with, with that field? Uh, the same, do the same thing with the internet that I did with cattle handling years ago before there was internet. Write about the farm. Oh, there's fantastic articles in that Stockman grass farmer, and they're not available online. Write about it in open formats that are easily searchable, explaining how you did things. This is, and with a lot of pictures of before and after, pasture before, pasture after. Okay, then when it's time to rotate the cattle, um, this is what the pasture looked like when we rotated it. And this is what the new pasture looked like we rotated in. Lots of pictures because I've trained a lot of people to be welfare auditors for meat plants. And what I've learned is it has to be very simple. The instructions have to be simple and not complicated. That's something else that's really stood out as I've dove into your work. And it's you have taken things and made it so simple. I was I was amazed with how you'd done the audit for like McDonald's uh, years ago. But yet the solutions are so massive uh, as far as moving the needle. And well, how, let me tell you, that, how, that thing I did in 1999, I had McDonald's as a pioneer. And then Wendy's came in with a fantastic system a few months later and Burger King. And I had all three of those companies using that audit exactly the same. It worked like magic. Now the trick is, is what are the critical control points to measure? If this is a concept from food safety, let's just say I'm gonna be doing micro counts in a food processing plant, you know, for, for germs basically. I can't measure a hundred things in that plant. I have to figure out what's the top 10 places where maybe you're most likely to have contamination. You measure there. Door handles is one of them. And uh, so with the meatpacking plants, I had five critical control points that we measured. The first one was when you hang it up on the rail and it shows any sign of consciousness, you fail the audit period. 
Then we did stunning efficacy. You had to shoot 95% unconscious with one shot from a captive bolt. You had to make that number. Falling down, 1%. Slipping, 3%. Vocalization in the stunning area, 3 to 5%. They had to make the numbers. Very simple. Electric prod use had to be under 25%. Before, it was 500%. They had to make these numbers. It was very simple. Did he move? Yes or no? Did you touch it with the electric prod? Yes or no? And then there were six acts of abuse. That would be automatic failures. And some people have a hard time believing you could help, that you could make that work. Well, it's sort of like traffic. I like to do an exercise. If you could only enforce three things for traffic safety, only three things, what would be the three most important things for you to enforce? I often do this with people, and then I have them guess them. And most people say speeding and red light and stop sign violations. But I have to push and push and push to get the 800-pound gorilla, which is drunk driving, or now there's other ways to be impaired to driving. I said, wait a minute, you haven't told me the 800-pound gorilla. It's drunk driving, and I measure it with a device. Speeding's measured with a device. Very objective. And then four and five is going to be seat belts, because seat belts protect me, but they don't protect you against my horrible driving. That's why they're number four, and then texting I'm going to put in there. But you see, it's, and we can pull phone logs. And if you are typing on the keyboard when you're driving, you need to be in trouble for that. Uh, yeah. But you see, those would be the critical control points. And I could get 95% of my safety probably on the top three. You see, that's the principle. I love this uh, critical control points. And then, and then there's very simple. They had to make their numbers. Now, the other thing I did, and I was working with all three of those companies at the same time, is I was not shoving expensive equipment down the, into those plants. I'm very proud of the fact that out of 75 McDonald's suppliers, great big plants, only three had to buy expensive things. It was amazing what repairs, stunning was mainly repairs, what non-slip flooring would do, adding some lighting, improving the training of employees, simple stuff like that fixed most of the plants. We had some kind of old dumps and I got them to work. I'm, that I actually did what I called reverse, reverse conflict of interest. I had a conflict of interest on expensive equipment. I bent over backwards to make whatever facilities they had there work and pass that audit. That's why it worked. I look back on it, almost can't believe I pulled it off. But it was so simple. And the plants didn't go berserk because I wasn't shoving millions, a million dollars worth of stuff down their throat. What do you see we can do for these uh, smaller processors or smaller uh, meat operations to make it more efficient to where they can compete with these big guys? Or well, is, is that a pipe dream? Don't try to compete with the big guys. That's a mistake. Do what our craft breweries do here in Fort Collins. We have a very, very vibrant craft beer industry here. And they're little tiny pubs with their own um, brewing equipment. And right next door is a huge Budweiser plant. They coexist. Use that as the model. They coexist. Now, if one of those little craft breweries gets into many supermarkets, they'll get on Bud's radar and maybe get bought. But those little breweries coexisted absolutely beautifully in the shadow of a Budweiser plant. And then a Coors plant just done, I don't know, 20 some 30 miles away in Boulder. I'm. No, they can coexist. Local markets. 
The other thing I'm very interested in, I've been looking into these Frisola portable meat units. And they they start out just as a trailer that you'd haul around the ranches and slaughter it on the ranch. That doesn't work. It's too expensive. So what they're doing now is they've got a trailer you buy that's the slaughter floor. Then other trailers you buy that are coolers. Another trailer you can get that's the meat cut-up room. And you mount them on a slab permanently. And you can build a small processing plant for roughly half the cost. And the other thing that's nice, they legally are trailers. Even though you even though you take the wheels off, put them on a slab and never move them. Helps on a lot of permitting stuff. As well as portable slaughter plants. Um, I, I think for a lot of very small processors, if they want to build them, it's a way to go. Because the build from scratch or bricks and mortar construction will be double the cost and the permitting problems worse. Legal One of my friends has an advantage. Yeah, the, the cost definitely definitely an advantage there. The uh, mobile processing facilities, I've seen those pop up a little bit. I don't know that they've, they've really caught on, well, uh, but one of my friends has mobile, I'm sorry about interrupting. I have a problem with uh, oh, timing myself on conversation. Uh, the mobile doesn't work. The hollow okay. trailer around, uh, uh, it doesn't work. It's too expensive. Well, what does work is, and this is what Friesel is now kind of converted it to, is you use these things to build a place that does not move on a concrete slab for roughly half the price of bricks and mortar and a lot less zoning problems because let's say if you went broke you can sell those trailers they can be taken off the slab and sold uh, one thing that we did recently was we bought a uh, a decommissioned refrigerating a refrigerated Connex container. And so it was insulated. The refrigeration yeah. unit didn't yep, work, work anymore. And we converted it into a big walk. Cause I own a farmer's market. So produce is, is kind of my number one thing. Okay. And we converted it, the 40 foot container into a walk-in cooler, a three stage walk-in cooler with cool bots and window units. And it works incredibly. I know that probably wouldn't meet guidelines for, for, well, uh, you know, inspection for what, of a meat for what you're doing. Um, you know, for federal, see these Friesla units are, um, are you know, they're out of the box, uh, federally inspected quality um, facilities. You know, now before, see in the beginning when the mobile stuff started, they just had this mobile trailer going to haul it around to the ranches. That doesn't work from a cost standpoint. I was just at a meeting several weeks ago, uh, Animal Paco Animal Welfare Training Meeting, met Chris, the uh, sales rep. And uh, he was showing me how now they're making stationary small slaughterhouses out of these modular trailers. And you have, a, and there's like three trailers in a typical system. You'd have a slaughter trailer, a refrigerator trailer, that's USDA, you know, quality in, inside, and refrigerated third trailer for meat cut-up and processing. These are mounted permanently. Uh, they're mounted on a slab, but legally, they are still trailers, and they could be moved if they had to be. And so there's like three trailers you buy, and you park them on a slab. Maybe you get a fourth trailer for another chiller. And this will enable you to get into a small processing plant about half the cost of standard bricks and mortar. Because it's all modular. Are these connected by rail, by is that how they move? Yeah, they would have rails inside. Yeah, you'd have, you'd have them connected, um, but legally they still are a trailer. 
So let's say you went broke. You could take those units off the slab and sell them. They legally are trailers. That has some advantages because building bricks and mortar now is getting so expensive. And another problem we've got is um, we don't have enough uh, young people going into skilled trades to build bricks and mortar. See, a lot of the people I worked with that built small slaughter plants, they've retired. And then you have people trying to build them. They don't know how to build them. And so if I was putting in a small plant, you know, you know, maybe 15 cattle a day at the most, 30 pigs a day at the most, you know, 30 sheep a day at the most, I would go with this, these Friesla modular units. I, now, they're I, not going to work for something out. real big. But... I, I was really pleased with what I, I was seeing with that. And we can forget about trying to haul a trailer around the ranches. It just doesn't cost out. <laughs> okay. um, we went to a local processor um, in a very, very small town. And it's really neat what, what he's done and put in a little meat market. And it's provided uh, like 14 jobs for a community of like 700. I mean, it, and that may be bigger than it actually was. What has been eye-opening is the opportunity for small communities. But yeah. I think the having, uh, you know, laborers or skilled laborers to actually be on that more of like an artesian butcher level yes. is yes. extremely difficult to find. Well, we have to be training people. And and uh, I was just at a, uh, a Hutchinson Community College yesterday and, you know, there's a, and talking to a person around a big steel shop I uh, built a, a maintenance hangar for Southwest Airlines, worked on the steel for it, and some of the best welders in there were autistic. And some of the people that built equipment for me 30 years ago, I can't give out their names because they have not disclosed publicly, but people that built major equipment for me and invented some stuff, they're autistic. And they have a bunch of patents. And the problem is, is these kids are just ending up in the basement today when they ought to be out building things and doing things and getting into regenerative agriculture is something I think they need to get into. I love that. The, the school system doesn't seem to be doing uh, any, any trades really well, that let, I'm aware of. Let's fix things one school at a time. And then as <laughs> I talked about before the system crashed, we write about how to do it. A big believer. Fix I write one. a lot of how-to articles. I've done the same thing with autism. I had a mom come up to me yesterday, and we were hugging each other, and she said, well, my kid uh, is doing so well. He's got a family now, and because they did some of the stuff I recommended in my books, get the kid out doing things. And I write how-to stuff, like how to work with little kids with autism. And there's four basically critical control points for three-year-olds. I want speech. I want them to learn how to wait and take turns at little games and skills like dressing. And you should be getting progress. And the child should love going to therapy. Then you know you've got a good program. It's that simple. You've got a good program. And uh, it needs autism. And one hour a week is not sufficient for a three-year-old. I'll also tell them that. <laughs> they got to have more. No, I don't that. think that's sufficient for really any of us to, to learn uh, or overcome anything. Uh, for me, um, it's, uh, you know, the, the ADHD uh, symptoms are, are, are bad. And I've dove into, you know, diet and nutrition a lot and different uh, 
you know, tools to try to help. Um, you know, I have a family with autism that we have gone through. And, you know, just looking back as as it's played out, you can see where we, we have made a lot of mistakes in not understanding, uh, not being able to apply things. And I think your work is uh, is incredible. And I, I just I'm, I'm I'm thoroughly amazed at how you have taken this complex uh, complexity of things in life and make it so simple to be applied. And I think that is just, I'm just in awe every time I see you do that. Well, and then I write it up. Uh, and I have, a, well, I have a little book now on autism and education. It's not a very thick book. It's only about this thick. But parents really love that little book because they, they don't want to read some big complicated thing. Um, uh, somebody gave me this giant textbook like that at a conference. I left it in the hotel room. I said, you show this to a parent, they're going to use it for a doorstop. They wouldn't know even where to start. It's too complicated. So where where is that first start do you see for us to get back into the trade? So if I'm going to go back I, to you know, it, my alma mater. Happening. Well, one of the things is, is my new book, Visual Thinking. Love it. It's discussed here, and I'm getting it distributed around, and I talk about it online a lot. Visual thinking, the hidden gifts of people who think in pictures, patterns, and were and abstractions. Another thing I did here, you might be interested in this book, I took all my I took all fifty years of my best papers and I put them on put them in this book. I don't know why that's appearing backwards. I don't have that backwards. one. I will get it ordered. Yeah, they both appear backwards. Okay, when I hold this up here. Hopefully they don't appear backwards to you. Nope, they don't. They're perfect. Um, tell right. me about the one that you specifically. They, they, um, I'm, you know, this is kind of the publisher decided to make it a big pricey textbook. But most of those papers are available online. They're just not all in one place. I've paid a lot of money to get stuff published open access. I mean, they charge for it. And wow. most of the stuff actually is in this book uh, is either on Grandin.com uh, or linked to Grandin.com. They just won't be compiled together. Right. Yeah, no. And I mean, the convenience and saving time, I mean, it's worth spending the money to have it packaged for you to make it easier and more accessible. Tell me about the one, the book that you wrote. I ordered it this morning. The book that you wrote specifically for kids to do experiments and experience. Oh, oh yeah. That's this one right here. This is um, Calling All Minds. That's my kids project book. Because when I talked to the, um, the, the person that did the steel work on the Southwest Airlines, um, I, I said, we've got to get kids interested in building things young. And obviously, we're not going to have eight-year-olds doing welding. But I'm finding that projects in here, like a paper airplane, the most simplest paper airplane, that when I did a book signing for this, that about 25% or so of the kids in suburban Denver had not ever made a paper airplane. Uh, I had a girl in my class last semester who had never used a ruler. We've got kids today totally removed from the world of the practical. I uh, said, so we've got to start out with getting little kids making things out of cardboard. And in that book, Calling All Minds, I've got little kites and parachutes I made as a kid that I spent hours tinkering with and stiffening the wings with adhesive tape and uh, and experimenting with them. 
and kids aren't doing those sort of things. So you, I was using tools in, in second grade, a hammer, pliers, and a screwdriver. I was taught to use them safely. A little saw I had in fifth grade, hand saw. And I had a drill that you could turn like an egg beater. I, re- I remember playing with one of those old, old drills that my, my grandpa had. That was uh, that, That's memories. I love doing that. When you talk about experiencing such a wide range of things, I, I think back to I had a grandpa that raised broiler chickens, one that raised okay. mama cows and did hay. I did real estate. I worked EMS. I worked on a pipeline. At, now I sell tomatoes on the side of the road. But I can pull different things from all of these different That's experiences right. that have added value. And what I refer to all these different, you know, latitudes is the lattice work of mental models. It's something that, you know, I, I play with and see how things are connected that, you know, a lot of people can't see see those uh Well, you see, a visual thinker, I'm what's called an object visualizer. Everything I think about is a picture. You know, then you have more mathematical minds that think more linear, more in patterns than any word thinkers, which are top-down, really linear. Now, my thinking is associative thinking. So I can see connections between things that might not be obvious connections. But when I explain them, then they are obvious. Um, Okay, I just thought of the word peacock right now. So now I'm seeing a peacock that um, somebody had in their backyard. And now I'm seeing from the 50s the old peacock emblem for the TV network. Yes. And now it reminds me of my little children's paint set little watercolor paint set that had little pans of paint and you and you used you know you had a glass of water to use with it okay so now how did peacock get the paint set now there's a logic there when i explain it you see that's associative thinking because as they and, as the and old that logo is... of the peacock would show up for the on the on the like early color yeah. tvs it it they remind me of the little pans of paint in my little paint set that are different colors. I get it completely. <laughs> I've I have found that it has made it uh, very difficult for me in communicating at times because these associations that I I don't know if they only make sense to me or if uh, you know it's something that we're I can't explain or should explain I guess. Well, the other thing I've tried to do, I've been in the cattle, involved with the cattle industry for 50 years, and so I wrote this paper here, Grazing Cattle, Sheep, and Goats is an Important Part of a Sustainable Agricultural Future. And a lot of people are bashing cattle as wrecking the environment. Well, what people forget is 20% of our land in the whole world that's habitable can only be used for grazing. There is not enough water for crops. There's not enough water from the sky in rain. And there's not enough water in the ground. You will just deplete the aquifer. And if you do grazing right, with you know, with rotational grazing, you can improve the land. You can sequester some carbon. Um, I see a really good future for the grazers. Also, using animals like goats for uh, fire control, you know, to eat out different kinds of shrubbery. I've found a number of papers on that. This is free access. It's in the Grandin papers, but it's also free online. Um, it, I, I thought I've been in this industry for a long time, and regenerative grazing, that's one of the bright spots in the future for animal ag. And so I, what I did there is I reviewed all the papers I could find on grassland re- regenerative grazing 
but then also grazing cover crops. Okay, so the people that are grow growing corn and soy, every third year should do a cover crop, and you should be grazing that cover crop with grazing animals. We need to get the crops and the animals back together. I've been doing some consulting with Costco. I do have to have the disclaimer that they are paying for two graduate students to go to school. I will disclose that. But one of the things we're working on right now is, um, okay, you have a chicken farm in Nebraska, and the, and the farm is also growing corn and soy. Okay, fertilize that ground with chicken manure. You're going to have a lot less N getting into the water supply. Artificial fertilizer, a lot of N going into the water supply, really bad. And, uh, and then they'd have a cover crop and bring some cattle in, graze the cover crop. So you'd have, okay, the traditional cash crop, corn and soy, broiler chickens and cattle, or maybe sheep all together in something you're making much more sustainable. And it's something practical. The other thing that someone, I talked to one nice lady that had a chicken farm, and this consultant came out and said, we well, need to get a cement mixer and mix 50 different kinds of seeds for your cover crop. And I'm going, don't start a beginner on something that complicated. How about some wheat? Let's start out yeah. simple. Or a pre-mixed seed. She just has to dump it in the cedar. Don't start beginners out on complicated stuff. Now, you're lucky with the wheat. You can graze that wheat before it heads out. That's grass-fed. As long as it doesn't grow the grain, then you can let it grow and get a crop of wheat out of it. Now, that's really cool. But there's Again, things I love, where I love little how you... people will innovate. And, okay, even a big company like Costco, it'll be one farmer at a time. And then we write about it. That's we the write thing. About it. I love Writing it. about it is really important. <laughs> so let's say the same thing with the school. We do an innovative program at a school. And then you write about it. Just how to do it. Leave the politics out. Just write about how to do it. I love the temple template for education. Uh, it's uh, I think it's beautiful and something that I'm going to definitely take away from here and start trying to apply much, much better. Well, the um, other thing I, I, oh, sorry. The other thing that I do with no, autism go ahead. is, let's say when you're fully verbal autistic kids, take the, if they're visual thinker, are they going to be the art, mechanical, animals, or photography? And one thing I'm very worried about in art, in animation, is AI is going to take that over. But the one place where your kid's going to be safe from AI, anything hands-on. Okay, I just went to Hutchinson Community College. They just expanded their nursing program. That's not going to get taken over by AI. You know, uh, but some of the stuff with, uh, there's some artwork and graphic stuff, I think, that will get taken over. And there's some low-level programming that's going to get taken over. I'm watching it. Yeah, really the AI thing anything is anything that's hands-on is safe. Hands-on is safe. safe I think that's AI. what we got to get back to for for the local economies building that up. It's it's got to be more of that hands-on uh, focus. So, thank you, thank you for your time. I am. I'm just tickled. I've appreciated your work and diving in. I'm going to do so much more. I cannot wait to get uh, the experiment book for my kids. I've got four of them and just to well, play and do some things. I also have another book called The Outdoor Scientist, which is sort of the same kind of book, but it emphasizes watching animal behavior, looking at stars, looking at plants as they grow. I can't wait. Two I'm books, so the excited. Outdoor Scientist and Calling All Minds. And we've got more mental health problems now in kids. 
I'm not suggesting that they stop doing things online, but we need to reduce it a whole lot. People need to be doing more real things with real people. Um, I had a mom call me the other day, and her daughter was all kind of depressed and liked art. And I said, why don't you get her in an art class where she can have friends with the art class? Okay. You see, I just see it. Something. Well, you do be one before we jump off here. One more thing that I heard you discuss once, but I think it's worth going into one t another time. The light, the artificial light effects on uh, I think all of us, but especially with somebody with like ADHD or autism or some something else going on that stimulus. Can you explain what you did with, you know, filming it and what that is oh, doing yeah. to, to our I, minds? I have to give credit to a lighting contractor that came up to me at a conference at a book table. And uh, he whipped this phone out, plain old ordinary phone, and we filmed the place we were at with a slow motion video, just regular slow motion, not ultra, just regular. And you can find which LED lights flicker. Now that's not a problem for me, it doesn't bother me, but for some people that are autistic, maybe a head injury, ADHD, sensory processing disorder, whatever, they can see that flicker on LED lights and it just it drives them crazy. And you need to find LEDs that do not flicker. Also, some TV monitors, like what I'm on right now, uh, flicker because the refresh rate's too slow. Um, we, we've got to get away from that flicker. And, and there's ways to do it economically. Let's say you're stuck in a classroom, they got horrible ceiling lights that flicker. What you need to do is buy a lamp. Go to the light store with your phone, filming the different lights. Find one that does not flicker that you like. Put it in the lamp next to your desk, and it should be really bright, so it'll blot out the horrible LEDs on the ceiling, and maybe wear a hat. But you see, that's something simple that could be done. Now, if the classroom has windows, I want that student over by the windows. That will help. You see, I'm seeing it. I'm actually seeing my old elementary school classroom. It had big windows. Um, but that's something simple. You know, we have concepts like an inclusive classroom. Well, I don't know. How do you implement that? All right, let's look at some critical control points here. I want to fix the lighting because I'm going to, I'm going to guess it's going to affect 10 to 20% of the special ed population. The other thing I want to work on, the bullying problem. We've got to get bullying under control. The third thing I want to work on is pilot checklist type instructions for things involving sequence. I have a horrible working memory. So give me a pilot's checklist of the steps. And if they think that's stupid, just remind them that the FFA requires the pilots to do it every single flight. And just the other day, we had a cold snap. They backed the plane up. They did the checklist. And they go, wait a minute, the checklist is taking too long. We haven't turned yet. A frozen fuel valve. That plane went to the hangar. Wow. Yeah. wow. You see, that's uh, they were doing the checklist. Yeah, there's a book, The Checklist Manifesto, that That's is right. really uh, yes. was eye-opening for, for me. All right, well, thank you again. I've, we have we have a hard out. I am so sorry. I wish this could go on forever. Uh, thank you. Thank you for your kindness of jumping on and all the work you put out. You no doubt have a servant's heart, and I just uh, appreciate you immensely. Okay, well, thank you. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the studio then, and... Um, Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on Sewing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sewingprosperity.com.
Thank you for listening to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast. We hope that you have learned something new and that you are inspired to adopt regenerative practices in your community. Remember that by working together, we can create a sustainable and abundant future for ourselves and for future generations.